Take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 7. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to give a little bit of a disclaimer here, I guess. Um, moving out of chapter 6 into 7 and then following is where the book gets really, really difficult. Um, I still am determined to preach and not just give you a commentary. Uh, and because of that, it means I'm not showing all of my work uh, using the old mathematics term. Some of the things I'm going to show you the problem, and then some of the things I'm going to show you the answer. Some areas I'm going to show my work, but a lot of areas I just don't, I don't have time to do it, honestly. Um, I mean, the commentary that's my favorite on this book is, I think, over a thousand pages for the commentary alone. Uh, this sermon alone, this chapter alone is like 45 pages. I cannot get all of that into a sermon. If you ever want to come back to ask questions, don't hesitate. Right? Tom and I have had lovely conversations about uh, the Revelation already and hermeneutics along the way. Don't hesitate to ask if I don't show enough of my work and you're confused. Part of the reasoning on that, again, is I don't want to get bogged down into all of the little tiny minutia. So. All right. Uh, God's Word, Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing... At the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God to serve him day and night. In his temple, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, what a lovely passage. 
sweet promises. We do ask that you would give us understanding of what your promises are, delight in their reality, but even more so, give us delight in the faithful God who makes those promises. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. We can see who the night owls in the room are. Actually, if you're here this morning at 8.30, probably not a night owl in the room. They're still in bed, I guess. But uh, if you're up late enough, you got to hear the storm blow through last night. And what a doozy, right? I mean, that was a good storm. Yeah, that was a good storm. Uh, you know, we had tornado warnings and watches and such. And I guess the storm has killed a bunch of people kind of to the west of us as it's blown through. Storms like this kind of make me think through the, you know, the various winds that blow through. You go back and you think about the pictures, at least I do, the pictures, you know, from some of the tornadoes that have gone through Mississippi, maybe even going all the way back to Katrina. And the pictures there of New Orleans with, you know, all the devastation that that went through. And there's one category of picture that I love to think about, not as much for the theologian in me as much as for the science nerd in me. The category of picture is this, and you've seen it before. Storm is blown through and there is devastation everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And there's one house standing untouched in the middle. Right? You remember the pictures of Katrina with that, with the, you know, was it the sandbar where all the houses, I mean, even down to their foundations were gone. And there's one, you know, two and a half story house untouched in the middle of it. And you're like, how did that happen? The science nerd in me is like, I would love to have had like cameras around to just see what that house looked like in the storm. You know, did, did God just arrange it perfectly so that the winds you know, kind of parted around it? Did you watch the boats as they go sailing by in the wind? Did they just you know, kind of bounce and then bounce around that? Like, what did it look like to see this massive storm blow through? I mean, even to the point of tearing up the foundations next door. And this one stays untouched. Or the, the ones where the tornado goes through and you know, destroys house, 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 skips one, and then house, house. And you're like, what did that look like? I mean, I know there's no way to, to, I guess, actually properly film that. But I would love to see just how God works it out to preserve that one particular house where destruction is everywhere else around it. And it's that sort of category of picture that chapter 7 is actually answering. I mean, whereas we look at that picture and go, how is that house still standing? I mean, everything else around has been destroyed. How is that house still standing? Chapter 7 answers that question. As we go to think through humanity and the portrait of humanity interacting with the living and true God, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, but 7 is going to be important here, 4, 5, and 6 have laid out for us the opening of the seven seals in which we get to see God's plan for creation. And when in verse or chapter 5, where even heaven is longing for this plan to be implemented, who is the one who is noble enough and powerful enough to do it? Well, it is the Lord Christ, the Lamb that was slain. He begins to open the seven seals. He is uh, you know, kind of pictorially implementing God's plan of salvation. 
And there's, again, three aspects of that, that plan of salvation that are really challenging. You know, the one that we like, the preservation of God's people's salvation. Yay, we like that one. The problem was that it's in the middle of a sandwich that's really hard to take. The destruction of all of God's enemies and then even the destruction of the created order and the remaking of it. And if you were kind of paying attention and kind of reading through again, if you didn't have all of the entire Bible knowledge coming to, I guess the whole book probably wouldn't make sense, but uh, if you didn't know how the story ended, there would be a question again of looking at all of the devastation around and going, how is that house still standing? How is it that when the fifth seal is opened that you have God's people preserved beneath the altar? Because if you, again, were paying attention, all of the seven seals, the ones that have been opened thus far, aside from that one, are not contained to any one specific people group. They are worldwide concepts. The first seal, you have a rider coming out who appears to be good and right and true, but actually is the devourer. It's not a really pleasant word to say, actually, if you think about devourer. Put too many errors at the end of it. After the devourer comes, then following you have war, plague, blight, famine. Even in verse 7 and following, you have death and Hades. You have destruction that is washing through all of creation and is not confined to any one people group. Again, the verbiage of these, particularly the first four seals, is it's verbiage of universality. This is the reality of the world inside God's creation. Destruction coming everywhere. You skip to verse 12 where it again deals with the created order and you have an earthquake, the sun becoming black as sackcloth, the full moon becoming like blood, you have the stars kind of falling from the sky. It's all described in these great you know, kind of cataclysmic uh, images. And again, these are not images that are simply retained for the bad people and Christians are, are preserved. These are, it's portrayed in universality that all of creation is undergoing the judgment of God. And so you would ask the question, how is it that the fifth seal, how is it that these people are preserved for God? How is that house still standing? How are these people able to stand in God's presence? It doesn't make any sense at all. And if you were kind of chronologically going through again, uh, sixth seal is open in verse 12, you would have to actually skip ahead to chapter 8 where the seventh is opened, except for we have chapter 7 put kind of right there in the middle. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Unless actually you think about kind of a literary device where an author inserts a bit of text, a paragraph, a chapter, you know, whatever, to explain as commentary on what's actually taking place. We actually see this is actually how the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 1, what happens? God creates the entire world. Genesis chapter 2, what happens? It actually goes back and offers commentary on chapter 1, and it explains specifically how men and women were created. Now, historically... 
Theologians have had very little issue with that because they view chapter 2 of Genesis as commentary on chapter 1. The problem is when you actually begin to see them chronologically, it doesn't make any sense because some of the days don't actually match up because this one's a commentary on that one. Chapter 7 is a commentary on chapter 6, specifically a commentary dealing with verses 9 through 11. Who are these ones that stand in God's presence, that are under the altar, who are able to be in God's presence and not consumed? Not be consumed because the rest of the world is being consumed. Everything else is being destroyed in God's presence. Who are these? How are they able to stand? And we're going to look at really kind of four aspects uh, of God's plan for these, his people. First, we get into the chapter, and again, it catches us up with where we are in the seals being opened. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Again, think storms last night. Perfect providential illustration. Couldn't have planned that any better. Big old storms coming through. Where do you not want to be? Well, you don't want to be near any big trees that are going to blow over, and you certainly don't want to be anywhere near the sea, much less on it. Again, the Jews would have understood that. Two illustrations connected to this. But again, what's it, what's it kind of gathering at? What's it trying to capture and pull into our mind? Well, I suspect what we have here is, again, remembering this book is told like Polaroid pictures that are just kind of dropped to gather snapshots. Here we have a snapshot of the first four seals, the destruction, the wrath of God being poured out on and in creation. And here as it starts, you have four angels in essence holding back God's wrath from coming in and sweeping across the land and implementing the full destruction that God has ordained for creation. And if you you think about it, it's well deserved. This is not a creation that's been faithful. It's a creation that, again, the way Genesis kind of portrays it, didn't last very long. I mean, you could imagine it lasting just a couple of hours before Eve is like, hmm, you know what, serpent, you got a good point. Pleasing to the eyes, the flesh, boastful pride of life, give me the fruit. But here you see God, and kind of first point to highlight here is that God's plan for his people is not reactionary. I love that. It's, it's not reactionary. It's not that God is, is sitting there kind of twiddling his thumbs and going, well, oh, rats, creation, you know, the Adam and Eve were bozos. They sinned against me. They're traitors. But now, oh, rats, what am I going to do? You know, he's not some great grandfather sitting up in heaven kind of guffawing at his people. Well, my great grandson, Adam, what a scamp. What do I do now? No, instead you see actually a great portrait of the Lord intentionally planning out His destruction of the earth, His preservation of His people in a proactive, intentional, non-reactionary fashion. While the four angels are holding back God's destruction, another one shows up from the east and says, Guys, you can't do this yet. Destruction is coming, but it's not permitted until the salvation of God's people is guaranteed. Now, it's interesting. It's it's not until their salvation is completed. 
It's not, hey, you can't bring destruction on the earth until God's people are fully sequestered away in safety. It's not, hey, you can't bring the destruction on planet earth or all of creation until all of God's people are taken out of creation, taken somewhere else. Instead, you see God's perfect plan is that God's people are to be preserved through it. Their salvation is to be accomplished, it is to be applied, but it's not yet completed. Verse 3, don't harm the earth, don't harm the sea, don't harm the trees, until we have, interestingly, again, sealed the servants of God's. The servants of God, servants of God. Specifically on their foreheads. And I'm being honest, there's a tremendous amount of writings on what this seal specifically is. I think second point kind of highlighting here, God's plan is partially, it's not reactionary at all. But here, interestingly, specifically with the plan of salvation, it's accomplished through His Spirit. When it comes time for God to interact with His people through this backdrop of the wrath of God, which is, again, poured out on all of creation, which His people have to undergo. I mean, it's not like that the second you get converted, you don't have to walk through death anymore. I imagine that would make evangelism a lot easier, wouldn't it? Hey, you don't want to die? You want to just go straight to glory? Come on, be a Christian. Or to be able to give that offer of, hey, you want hurricanes to blow through and not knock your house down? Come a Christian. Come to church with us. It'll guarantee your safety. It'll guarantee your wealth. It'll guarantee your peace. It'll guarantee your prosperity. You won't ever have to die. Your life will be easy. You'll never cry again. Obviously, that's not what the Lord has ordained. Instead, he he works in his people in such a way that they're equipped to undergo all of the same difficulties as everybody around them. Again, they're equipped to deal with the four seals that have already been opened. They're equipped to deal with the destruction of the world. They're they're equipped to deal with war. Equipped to deal with famine. Equipped to deal with death. And even Hades are victorious over both. And that's important for us to remember. Again, if you read the news, again, even this week, another church invaded in, I think, Nigeria, right? Thirteen, I think, taken this time, killed. Beheaded specifically. That's one of the great lies that the the prosperity gospel offers is that once you become a Christian, you're taken out of the difficulty, you're taken out of the suffering, you're taken out of all of the things that God has purposed for his creation. And you're like, guys, that's not the point. The point is not that you get converted and then are removed from the curse. The point is that you are converted and then you're sealed for the curse. Specifically here, I suspect this is the sealing of the Holy Spirit so that God's people are perfectly, holy, saved, guaranteed, and preserved even through it. Just the impression that you get is that once this sealing is placed upon God's people, well then the destruction can come. Once the seal is placed upon the saints of God, then you don't have to worry about it. You can pour out all the harm you want on creation, and these people cannot be destroyed. 
We get to see this seal idea shows up throughout the scriptures, but specifically in this book. And it really kind of captures the idea of authentication, of ownership, and of protection. Those are kind of the three categories that the idea of a seal gathers. You see it show up in 14, chapter 22 as well. Uh, Specifically here, probably most closely connected to the idea of ownership and the idea of protection. That God's people don't undergo the, the, the wrath that is being poured out on creation generally until they have been marked as belonging to God and protected by him. Now that's extremely important as we begin to have conversations with the saints around us. So that when our friends get cancer at 35... We don't have to say, well, rats, I'm sorry, I wish you were a better Christian. You wouldn't have gotten that. We don't say things like, well, if only you had more faith, then you wouldn't have gotten sick. Well, no. No, that's a lie, and that's a terrible lie. We're all God's people. We're underneath the judgment that's being poured out on creation. Not us specifically, but the judgment on creation. We're underneath these four seals that have already been opened. But God's preservative hand is placed upon us so that when you do get cancer at 35, your spouse gets a traumatic brain injury from a car accident, or a child is called home, or any sort of other terrible thing, we know that we still belong to God and that cannot be taken away from us. It it frees us from the burden of having to evaluate our life by our circumstances. We've been talking about this in Sunday school, the the accidentally bad teachings that we've been taught along the way. Uh, One of the accidentally bad teachings, terrible teachings that I was taught along the way, uh, was the idea of open door theology. (laughs) That God communicates to you most clearly through open doors and closed doors. That's terrible theology. It's absolutely wretched theology. Because what you're in essence doing then is looking at your circumstances to see how God loves you. And the problem with that is what? Is the second that you get under really ill circumstances, you begin to question, does God love me? And it's interesting that John's answer here, Jesus' answer here is, before any of the the curses even being implemented inside creation, you have to realize God's had this perfect plan where he seals his people to himself in an act of ownership and in an act of protection. And in order to accomplish that perfectly, he's given them his spirit. So that we have a guarantee you think about that, like young married couples when they first get married and, you know, they're separated after the honeymoon or whatever and somebody has to go back to work or maybe have to go back for a trip to the family. And you can imagine how easy it is to go, well, like, did that actually happen? <laughs> like, do we actually get married? Did that actually happen? Or maybe even worse yet, you have doubts about the spouse. Like, what are they? And then you go back and go, no, actually, look, I have this really handy reminder that we've been sealed together. That we belong, there's a sense of ownership, there's a a sense of connection. Here, not a ring, we've been given something infinitely more valuable by God, we've been given His Spirit. So that if we wonder at our circumstances, so that if we grow confused or discouraged or weak or weary or wounded, we can go back and say, look, we have His Spirit. 
we need not be afraid. I don't know if you caught it, that's actually part of John's argument in 1 John chapter 4 that we read previously. Why do we not need to be afraid? Because perfect love casts out all fear. Well, that's great, but how do I know I have perfect love? Well, Jesus has accomplished that for me. Well, how do I know I have Jesus? I have his spirit within me. And if I have his spirit within me, I need not be afraid because I have been sealed to the triune God. I belong to him. This is God's perfect plan for creation. And again, I love how it continues on. This sealing is accomplished. And verse 4, he finds out the number of those sealed. 144,000. Again, there's five primary takes on this. I'm not going to walk you through all of them. Uh, the one that I think is the most persuasive uh, is that uh, this 144,000 is a capturing of those that are uh, presented as under the altar in verse uh, 9 through 11 of the previous chapter, uh, and those that are then captured as the large multitude in verse 9, uh, also captured in chapter 14. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is that all of the numbers kind of change a little bit. Here you have 144,000 mentioned in connection to these that are sealed. Uh, I think it's chapter 14. Uh, it, where they're mentioned specifically as those that are sealed. Uh, but specifically in that case, they're only men and they're only virgins and they're all warriors. Uh, the numbers kind of change and fudge a little bit. And the reason being is because the, the significance is not the actual literal number. It's not one had 12,000, one had 12,001, one had 11,999, but it all averages out. If you look at these numbers and see kind of the significance of them, you think 12 is a really important number in Israel's history and specifically in this book. We've already seen the 12 elders of the Old Testament, the 12 elders of the New Testament. We've seen that number coming out repeatedly. Here you have 12 mixed with 10, 10, 10, 10 being the number of completion. And what you're getting at, the idea is the fullness, the totality, the symbolic representation of the fullness of God's saints. Said differently, if you had the Old Testament in mind and were a brilliant kind of Jewish Old Testament scholar and you wanted to make up a number that would capture the idea of the fullness of God's people, this is the number you would make up. 12 from every tribe, 12,000 from every tribe for 144, the fullness of the people of God. All of God's people here being sealed together uh, in these 12 tribes. Uh, very interesting kind of one note of sort. Uh, the list of the 12 tribes actually doesn't match the Old Testament. There's a mess up because there's one specific tribe that's mentioned and one that gets doubled over. Dan is absent. Uh, and specifically it's absent because uh, they're the ones that went and worshipped uh, God in their own way. They're the ones that made their own uh, worship center, their own place, wanted to worship God on their own terms. And guess what? When you show up to the ceiling of God's people, they get left out because it's not worship God's way. These 144,000 God's people preserved by the Holy Spirit, able to undergo the fullness of the wrath of God that's being poured out on creation. Now, I'm not talking about in, you know, the end time, the final destruction, judgment day. What I'm talking about is the wrath that we currently experience right now. Cancer, losing a job, growing old, stomach flus, all of the various things that we all go through that are part and parcel to living in a fallen world. 
war, famine, death, and hell, the things mentioned in the previous seals. Now, in verse 9, we, we get a little bit of a change. Uh, one Polaroid picture is replaced by another Polaroid picture, continuing the kind of interlude here, explaining what's been happening with these people. And now there's a change. After this, I look, behold, a great multitude that no one could number here. I suspect, again, he's capturing that idea of fullness, the totality of the people of God here from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. Some have said that here he's trying to specifically highlight that the Gentiles are being brought in. I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with that. It doesn't matter either way. Uh, it's getting to the fullness of people of God. There, there's no one lacking in this number. And again, how intriguing that God's salvation of his people, his preservation of his people, it's not reduced to solely conversion, but that it, it surpasses even the difficulty of the world around them. Now, the interesting thing as we continue very rapidly, yikes, time gets away from me in this book, is now you get to find out about their condition. How is it that they're still standing? How is it that they've made it into God's presence? How is it that they're able to stand? And you found out already God has sealed them. He sealed them with his Holy Spirit. He sealed them in fullness in the totality of the people of God. And you go, well, okay, that's great. But maybe they made it there with their tail feathers on fire. Maybe just by the, by the skin of their teeth. Maybe they flamed out. They're miserable. Maybe. Well, what are these people like? And you find out in verse 9, every uh, tribe, people, language, they're, they're all from every nation. It's a, a worldwide conglomeration of people here standing before the throne. And this is an interesting kind of injection and introduction into the text because now you get to see the saints not arrayed kind of cowering, but standing in the very presence of God. A place that angels are fearful to tread. This ceiling has been so perfect in its power that now the next kind of visual snapshot you see are the saints of God standing in the glory cloud of God. That is a remarkable transition. That here they reside in the place where even the angels are cautious to go, able to stand in boldness and in confidence, and you find out why. Well, because they're clothed in white robes, they're clothed in perfection, they're clothed specifically, we're going to find out in a second, in Christ's perfection, and they are ushered in praising. Palm branches, victorious, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love, kind of again, the snapshot of what this looks like for the people of God. That as they are ushered into God's presence, they come in with boldness, come in in the righteousness of Christ, and they come in praising. Victorious. Marvelous. Grand. And I love how this snapshot, again, it, it describes God's people from God's perspective. Not from ours. Because I've had opportunity to think about that this week. Because it's interesting because from my perspective, the way that Gramps passed into the life to come is a very different kind of perspective on life, isn't it? 
undergoing a terrible disease, Alzheimer's, where his mind was taken from him as his body was not until there was the shell of a person left. Until he finally quietly whispered away. And you could say, well, what, what a waste. You could say, well, yeah, that's really kind of unfair. It's not, but that's a different question. You could say, well, how is it that that's what victory looks like? And we say, well, that's from our perspective. Here in verse 10, we get the description of what Gramps looks like from God's perspective. One entering into his presence, sealed with the Holy Spirit, gathered from the nations, covered in the righteousness of Christ, victory in his hands, and praise in his mouth. And again, go back to the beginning. What a great reality. This is, this is not reactionary. This is what God had planned from the beginning. This is how comprehensive his plan is. This is how comprehensive his salvation is so that it is effective perfectly in his people. And then you see it doesn't stop there. Verse 11, the angels and the elders join in in worship. This is interesting that God's people, as they're brought through the difficulty of this life, brought through the curse of this world, when they enter into the life to come, they lead heaven itself in worship. That's fun to think about. That you yourself, when you pass into the life to come, whenever that is, could be today, could be tomorrow, could be 50 years from now, I have no idea. But when we do, we will be equipped to even lead the angels in worship. New nature. Sin nature gone. I love that. They join in. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, power, honor, and might to our God forever. Amen. Verse 13. Then you have this really interesting interchange where uh, one of the elders gives John the opportunity to kind of engage and ask a question. And he does it in the most Jewish of fashion. Jewish culture loved questions. That's why if you actually go back and read the Gospels, uh, most often Jesus answered questions with questions. That's very much how their culture interacted. Our culture doesn't do questions very well. We don't value them and we don't encourage them. Jews did. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? It's a really important question if you get this sort of snapshot because here you have this kind of uncounted host that's brought in. They're brought in with victory in their hands, with victory in their mouth. They're brought in absolutely glorious. And what a contrast that would have been from all of the destruction that's being poured out in the previous sections. You're going, well, so ambivalent. Destruction everywhere. Victory here. Who are these guys and again the elder is asking the question to John to give him opportunity to engage and John wisely and righteously gives a very good answer I'm going to keep my mouth shut that's his answer I'm not really going to comment on this you know more than I do you've been here longer than I have sir you know you tell me You give me the commentary. You give me the explanation. And the man explains, look, these are the ones who have made it through the great tribulation. And again, if you remember, go back to chapter 1. John's been explaining from the very beginning this uh, tribulation is the tribulation that all the saints go through and has been uh, from the very arrival of King Jesus himself. These are the ones who have made it. 
These are the ones who have passed through the difficulty of this life and made it into the life to come. These are the ones who are victorious. And I love how you get to see, even as the man commentates on who these ones are, you get to see the promises of God written large because you get to see, and I, this is the part I enjoy, it again gives commentators kind of flips, because the verb tenses change for the next section. He switches back and forth kind of fast and loose so that you get to see some of these promises are accomplished now in this life underneath the tribulation that we're called to go through. And some of them are accomplished in the life to come. These are the ones who have already made it through the great tribulation. They have already washed their robes and already made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I'm obviously commentating by adding the already. But they're highlighting, when, when were those promises of God accomplished? Past tense. These are the ones who were victorious long before they ever showed up. They didn't need victory to get here. They were victorious before. Why? Because they were clothed in the blood of the Lamb. Their robes, their, their record have been exchanged for the record of Christ. They were and are a righteous people. Therefore, because of this past tense accomplished salvation, now they get a present tense, future tense glorification. Because they were saved in this past tense, now they can be before the very throne of God. They can be equipped to serve Him night and day in His temple. They can be the ones in His presence. And because of that, they will then have all blessing forever. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more sun, no more heat, no more destruction. Again, those things for us today will be like, well, that's kind of an odd set of things to promise. No more hunger, sun shall not strike them, scorching heat. That's actually a really smart set of things to promise after the four seals have just been opened. I mean, one of them was named famine. Right? Everything went into great poverty because of it. Here you're seeing, look, all of those things that existed under the tribulation, all of those things that existed under the curse, all of those things that existed in this life that made it difficult and miserable and hard, aging and sickness and cancer and loneliness and depression and all of those things, they're all taken away because the Lamb will be in their midst. And he will fully guide them to every blessing and wiping away every tear. And this is an incredibly important kind of category for us to have in our mind. Because right now the most popular strain of Christianity, and I I use the air quotes for Christianity because it's not Christian at all, but the most popular strain of theology in America of those that would label themselves Christians is that of the prosperity gospel. And the problem is this is an unbearable lie from the pit of hell. And that lie is a lie that we are very tempted to believe. The idea that if we do good things, God blesses us in this life. And the flip side of that is very true where we're tempted to become Job's friends. That when we see people experiencing bad things in this life to say, well, you must have done something bad to deserve it. And what that does is that robs us of the category of holy people under the curse of creation. 
that we are, as God's saints, holy people, that, in many ways, right properly to say, victims underneath the curse that's been given to all of creation, so that childbirth is hard, so that work is hard, so that cancer is here, so that miscommunication happens, so that destruction, so that our years are limited to 120, so the animals hate us and we oftentimes hate them, animosity between all of these various aspects of the curse, even further with the world, the flesh, and the devil hating us, that is our existence in this place. So we need not be overly concerned when we run into difficulty. Because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Because God's sealing is even greater than the wrath being poured out on creation. And because we come through praising. Victory in our hands, victory in our hearts, the praise of God in our mouth. And it will be brought to completion. This is actually the tool. This is, I mean, it was the chapter that's going to help set us up on how to deal with our friends when they go through great suffering. So that when there's tears that are being shed, we don't have to say, it'll be okay. It might be, it might not. We don't have to say, well, there's you know, other fish in the sea. We don't have to give those ridiculous kind of just vain platitudes that our world offers. We can say, guess what? If you are in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And no matter how bad life gets, that cannot be taken from you. And neither can these promises. And we'll walk with you together until that day. Until these promises are made full. Until the not yet becomes already, and we rejoice together in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even the really hard parts. We thank you for your spirit who has sealed us to Christ, and we need not worry. And Lord, we thank you for the rest that we can have in him. We praise you for Christ's sake and the spirit. Amen.